Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Tomorrow's TuneIn Podcast. I am your host, Chris Marshall, and this is show number 20 for the month of May 2009. Today on the show, we have two great interviews. We are first going to start out with Michael Urie and his new book, Captain Action, the original superhero action figure. And we also touch a little bit on back issue number 35. We also have a talk with Pierre Comtois, who is the author of Marvel Comics in the 1960s, an issue-by-issue field guide. So we're going to be talking a lot about the 1960s and that decade today on the show. When you think about it, the 1960s has defined the comic book industry even up through today. That When you look back, you look at the Silver Age. That's what it was. Sure, there was the Golden Age and the pulps and everything that was going on, but it was really the Silver Age. That's where comics took off. That's where everything really stems from, even in today's day and age. So we're going to take a look back a little bit on history today in the show. As far as the news goes for Tomorrow's Publishing, Saturday, May 2nd is Free Comic Book Day. And if you're listening to this over the weekend, head on over to the Tomorrow's website and Friday, May 1st through Sunday, May 3rd to celebrate Free Comic Book Day. We'll be giving away a free digital edition Comics Go to Hollywood and Comics 101 and each of our current magazines, including Alter Ego, Back Issue, The Jack Kirby Collector, Draw, and Brick Journal. Plus, we have PDFs of our recently departed Rough Stuff and Right Now, which are still available as back issues. These digital editions normally retail from $2.95 to $3.95 per download, but are free over the three-day free comic book day weekend. So head on over to the blog right away. For all other information, head on over to tomorrow's blog. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the blog with your favorite RSS reader. It's the best way to keep in touch with all the happenings over here at Tomorrow's. Real quick, let's run down the books coming out this May. And remember that all dates are subject to change, so be sure and head on over to the website for an updated list, and it's right there on the homepage as always. Coming out May 13th, Alter Ego number 85 for $6.95. This is our Captain Marvel vs. Superman issue with a great new cover by Rich Buckler. May 20th has the comic book podcast companion by Eric Houston for $15.95, of course, uh, very near and dear to my heart right there, that book is. We also have Modern Masters, Volume 21, Chris Sprouse, the trade paperback, for $14.95. Back issue number 34 also comes out that day. That retails for $6.95. It's our New World Order issue, and it features an incredibly cosmic Warlock and Thanos cover illustrated by Jim Starlin. Go check it out. May 28th, we have Brick Journal number 6, Volume 2, the summer 2009 issue for $8.95 with a look at old Lego classic space sets and a look towards the new with set designers. Brandon Griffin also beams us in with his look at his Star Trek models. We also have coming out that day Brick Journal Compendium Volume 3 for $34.95. This compiles the digital-only issues of 6 and 7 of the acclaimed online magazine for Lego enthusiasts of all ages for the first time in printed form. So that's it coming out in May. Let's get right to the interviews. I'm going to first start out with Michael. All right, we are here with Michael Yuri again. Michael, you are beginning to be my partner on this show, it seems like I have you well, on so many you. times. Am I Siskel to your Ebert or <laughs> Vanna, Vanna to your Pat Sachak? Well, I, I, am, I am probably the Roger Ebert of the both of us. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm not that big, Jesus. Uh, but you have the new book coming out later this summer, and it is Captain Action, the original superhero action figure. And if you can, for those of us who may not be familiar with Captain Action, uh, give us a little uh, history on who this character actually is. Well, Captain Action was, as the subtitle of the book says, the original superhero action figure, and I think that's probably hard for... Uh, a young person today who goes to Target or Toys R Us or uh, to a comic shop and sees this this you know litany of variations of say Batman action figures to think that there was a day when 
those things did not really exist. And in the 60s, that was pretty much the case. Um, Captain Action was a 12-inch posable action figure with cloth costuming, and he was the superhero answer to and competitor of G.I. Joe. Mm -hmm. Whereas G.I. Joe became all these different military figures, Captain Action became all these different superhero figures. And in this amazing licensing deal, uh, which you'll never see happen again under one umbrella, you know, title, one franchise, uh, you know, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, uh, Flash Gordon, all these characters from these different licensors were all folded into this one property line. So you could go to the store or make your list to Santa Claus and ask for uh, you know, a Captain Action figure and, say, a Batman suit and ensemble for him, which was uh, Batman was the, by far the, the top-selling Captain Action uniform of the day, and the day being 1966 through 1969, which was more or less the heyday of Batman's TV popularity, too. How, how did he come about originally? Did he have a... He, did he have a comic book series of his own, or was he just a product of the, all these licensed products, like you said? Well, he was. He was. Uh, it, it, this is interesting because I mean, I, I had a Captain Action as a kid, okay. and uh, you know, I, I loved it. I, I really did. But I think my love for Captain Action was maybe predicated upon my love for the costumes that I bought for Captain Action. But he was sort of this guy who you know, you put a mask over his face, and he'd become these other characters, and then. The rest was left to your imagination. But um, he came about in direct response to G.I. Joe, which more or less came about in direct response to Barbie. Uh, okay. Barbie in the late 50s was created by a lady named Ruth Handler, and uh, basically Barbie introduced a concept they called in the toy business. And by the way, I didn't know any of this stuff you know, until I researched this for the book. But the, it introduced a concept called the razor razor blade concept, and again, you know, razor blades. Uh, you know, of <laughs> people who use electric shavers are thinking, "What's that?" But um, uh, essentially, the concept being, you sell the host product, the razor, which is Barbie or GI Joe or later Captain Action, and then you create. For the market, these must-have, must-buy razor blades, which for Barbie is, you know, the bathing suits, the later the Malibu Barbie, all the stuff, and then Ken, <laughs> and then uh, for GI Joe it was a Frogman suit or an Army suit, a Spaceman suit, whatever, and then for Captain Action again it was Superman, Aquaman, you know, Batman, Captain America, the Lone Ranger, all these recognizable characters of the day. And um, superheroes were very, very popular in the mid to late 60s. Um, and even some action heroes were super heroic, like James Bond and The Man from Uncle. Uh, a lot of this stuff was, I think, uh, a way for Americans to escape from the reality of the day, which was the Vietnam War, which, you know, we on, on television news every night, you can see people being butchered. I mean, they, they literally... When I was a child, back then in the 60s, you could watch the nightly news and see a child napalm, you know. Uh, <laughs> we don't see that type of graphic footage from war any longer on television. Uh, and then also there was all the civil unrest and stuff going on in America in the 60s, and it was a very tumultuous age. So uh, entertainment got really campy, and the superheroes got campy, and, uh, and they were so popular. And so Captain Action was a product line to, uh, to take advantage of that, and... Captain Action really was the first superhero action figure. There had been some figurines of Superman and um, Batman, but that was it. There, you know, the thing that we would identify as an action figure today really didn't exist in male form until G.I. Joe, and then Captain Action was literally the first superhero one. So. Again, it's hard to believe today with, you know, literally thousands and thousands of action figures out there and having been there and on people's shelves and such. But, you know, back then, 40 years ago, there were very few, and, and this sort of started the ball rolling for superhero action figures. Well, not only... Um, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
Uh, well, I'm just going to conclude by saying there was one guy who uh, was mainly behind the idea, though. His name was Stan Weston. Okay. Uh, it, it was a team effort to develop Captain Action, but Stan, Stan Weston, excuse me, uh, had the, the brainstorm. of, And he was actually, uh, curiously, involved with, he was one of three people involved with the development of G.I. Joe. So like a year later, for a rival company, he said, hmm, let's do this concept again, but instead of selling military, we'll sell superheroes. And uh, he also was a licensor and had contacts at a host of different uh, companies and over the years has represented them, including you know, places like Major League Baseball and uh, the Harlem Globetrotters. So he's had his fingers in a lot of pies and was you know, well-connected and uh, was a guy who could pull off a, a deal that brought you know, Spider-Man and, and Superman under one roof for one toy line. Growing up uh, in the mid to late 70s, I had uh, action figures like the $6 million man and the the Star Trek uh, 12-inch figures. And it's funny, when you look at like the uh, the 40-year-old virgin when he had the, the Steve Austin one and he's looking through the back of his head with an eye, you know, with his eye there, I, I laughed my head off. And it, that just reminds me <laughs> of this kind of thing because I was watching with my wife and I'm like, I had that growing up. And, of course, we probably all did having, you know, growing up. And it's just... That ju- it just kind of entered my mind, and as far as the action figures go, but uh, not to get uh, too off track now. But uh, when I think of licensed properties and toy lines, uh, the Star Wars always comes to mind. And George mm-hmm. Lucas did did he take a look at what Captain Action was able to do from your research? Did you did you take a look at the progression of licensed toys at all? Mm, you know, I, I don't. No, if there's a direct correlation, there's an indirect one right. uh, between Captain Action and uh, and Star Wars. Believe it or not, there was uh, uh, Ideal Toys was the company that that produced Captain Action, and uh, back during the old fifties, sixties, seventies, Ideal was one of the major players, and they were uh, in the sixties they. Sponsored a lot of television cartoons, and, and to the point of where they literally prostituted themselves, and that's probably a harsh word for a toy. But uh, um, on the TV shows, by having the characters really sing little jingles involving their toys, like uh, Magilla Gorilla, mm-hmm. uh, at the end of his his show, he would say, you know, uh, brought to you by. I'm paraphrasing. Ideal. And uh, you know, he literally would do like a little, you know, uh, pitch for the for the company, and so Ideal was a was a heavy hitter, and um, they just produced this thing later on in the '70s where they took Captain Action's body mold, and it was a Star Wars Darth Vader knockoff called the Knight of Darkness. <laughs> And a lot of people back until Captain Action got reissued, uh, they would use Night of Darkness uh, pieces. They'd cannibalize them to repair their Captain Actions because a lot of the Captain Actions, you know, after 10, 20, 30, 40 years of play, uh, where it started to fall apart. And uh, so, yeah, the Night of Darkness there. But again, as far as any, you know, specific uh, progression, I don't know. I mean, Captain Action, as far as superheroes are concerned, really did start the ball rolling for the concept, though, of uh, the superhero action figure. And I, I think that's that's something to the, the toy's credit. Um, Captain Action as an individual character was also merchandised. Um, mm-hmm. There was a Ben Cooper Halloween costume, uh, like an inflatable swim ring. Um, there were... Uh, a car, there was a card game that was issued in Cool Pop's Frozen Treats. Um, all kinds of weird stuff. I mean, uh, but I mean, they were aggressively marketing the character and uh, to the character's benefit, and I might say to his demise mm-hmm. as well, because it. Um, there, there's theories as to why Captain Action lasted three to four years, and that was. Uh, I mean, he was he was a success, but not an overwhelming one, and it wasn't a flop. But. Um, you know, by the end of the 60s, uh, he was gone and just kind of remaindered product in, in toy stores. But uh, one theory is that since Ideal Toys sold or marketed Captain Action, both as this 
masked man who could become other superheroes and as a character all his own, it kind of splintered his identity. And um, whereas you know, G.I. Joe really developed uh, kind of a singular identity as uh, the all-purpose military man, mm-hmm. um, still it was always G.I. Joe. It was G.I. Joe the frogman, G.I. Right. Joe the sailor, G.I. Joe the astronaut, whereas it was Captain Action as Superman, Captain Action as Sergeant Fury. You know, uh, and, and so I think it might have weakened his identity in the long run and just uh, shorten his shelf life. But goodness sakes, a guy keeps coming back. <laughs> well, let's talk about your book itself. How do you break up this book in your in your chapters here? Well, there are uh, originally I, I did uh, a first version of this book that was published by Two Morrows in 2002. Right. And and from it uh, was forged a relationship with uh, Two Morrows publisher John Morrow, which uh, splintered off into or spun off into other things, including uh, my second book, which was a biography of Dick Giordano. And then after those two books, uh, Back Issue magazine came about, which you know is now like six years and still going strong. Uh, and then a number of other books. But um, so originally it was ten chapters, and it started by looking at. Well, I just happen to have a copy here, so let me open up the table <laughs> of contents. But uh, the first chapter is a history of uh, Captain Action, just the overall concept, its development, etc. Uh, the second chapter is a look from more of the toy collector's perspective of the figure. The third chapter looks at Captain Action's superhero disguises with um, histories of each of the characters. And how then also... I'm sorry, go ahead. How many How many characters are we looking at overall? Uh, originally nine, nine. And then they added, for the second wave, four more. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so a couple of characters i mean there there were mostly marvel and dc or dc than marvel and then some characters who were better known for newspaper strips Mm -hmm. like the lone ranger and then second wave tonto came along um spider-man was not a first wave he was a second wave character um green hornet and buck rogers were added uh but again the first wave were and i haven't named them all Let's see if I can do this from memory. Superman, Batman, Aquaman, The Phantom, Flash Gordon, Steve Canyon. Mm, nice. Um, Sergeant Fury. Did I say Captain America? Mm-hmm. Captain America. And the Lone Ranger. I'm not counting. Uh, I think that's it. This, And then that was nine. And then again, the second wave would have been uh, Buck Rogers, Spider-Man, Tonto, and the Green Hornet. And the rarest of all 13 of those would be the Green Hornet and Spider-Man ensembles. They, mm-hmm. they came last. They were um, pretty popular because they had television visibility, mm-hmm. and those sold better. And um, so there were more Tontos and Buck Rogers that still kind of lingered in the marketplace and maybe later got picked up by collectors. Uh, meaning also the Green Horn and Cato got opened, played with, loved to death, you know, mm-hmm. ripped to shreds, little pieces, and the accessories got vacuumed up by mom. <laughs> you know, mom always comes along and vacuums up all the little pieces of toys. That's what we get for leaving them on the carpet, though, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> it's the boy's fault. But um, the fourth chapter of the book looks at uh, Action Boy, which is a sidekick to Captain Action, and he had three costumes of his own Robin, Aqualad, and Superboy. The fifth chapter looks at Dr. Evil, which, you know, anybody you know, saw movies in the 90s and early 2000s thinks of Mike Myers, mm-hmm. but Dr. Evil was a villain created for Captain Action. He had uh, he was an alien, blue skin, big bulging eyeballs, and an exposed brain, all the things good villains need. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the sixth chapter looks at the Super Queens, which was kind of a Barbie-izing of Captain Action, a com- um, companion line of uh, 11-inch like Barbie-looking dolls of Supergirl, Batgirl, Wonder Woman, and Mira. And now this is kind of weird, you know, Mira. There's not a whole lot of Mira right. merchandising. Um, then the seventh chapter looks at all the different arsenals and weapons and peripherals 
the eighth chapter looks at Captain Action in the comic books. Uh, DC Comics published in the late 60s the five-issue run of Captain Action comics. They were wonderful. First two issues were written by Jim Shooter and drawn by Wally Wood, and then uh, Gil Kane took over as writer and artist of the last three issues. Uh, it probably would have run longer as a comic series if it started earlier, but it kind of came, it literally started at the tail end of Captain Action's toy life. Mm -hmm. um, then there's uh, the ninth chapter is on collecting and customizing, and the tenth chapter was on the, at this point, the then recent revival, the late 90s, early 2000s, from a company called Playing Mantis, which brought back Captain Action. But uh, my new version of the book has an eleventh chapter which looks at Captain Action's recent comeback at Moonstone Comics mm -hmm. uh, as uh, a toy. Uh, there's a lot of Captain Action merchandising out there. Have I bored you to death? No, no. That's. I think it's very yeah. exciting because, <laughs> like, I, like I was telling you off air, this is a character I'm not that familiar with, and I think it's because of my age um, that I just didn't grow up with this character at all. And by the time uh, you know, I was into playing toys, he was pretty much done with. Um, yeah, which he was is drawn. Really I mean, that's that's one thing though that uh, the current creators of the comic book, uh, uh, Fabian and Nicieza, as mm -hmm. uh, as a writer, uh, came up with the concept for this this comic series that Moonstone is publishing now, and it basically does uh, a multi generational Captain Action thing, which is a clever way to keep the retro audience but not be solely dependent upon it, mm -hmm. because the retro audience is not that large, and uh, one perspective and then additionally too if you want to grow you know you've, you've got to grow beyond that but the folks behind Captain Action also realized that they could not jettison their classic audience because those guys love Captain Action so basically the current Captain Action is actually the son of the original Captain Action it's a generational saga which uh you know, this has actually become very, very commonplace in, in comics today. I mean, you know, DC in particular has uh, tons of legacy characters, and uh, and they've wisely built upon their histories rather than just totally rebooting. And you know, uh, which I mean, they did that back in the Silver Age. They rebooted these characters, but then they kept building from that point on. And so, Captain Action is part of a like a global network of uh, super spies, essentially. And um, and so he's in an ongoing Moonstone comic book. There are some Captain Action action figures. There's a beautiful uh, statue, mini statue, that I fortunately have. It was sculpted, designed and sculpted by uh, Ruben Procopio. And he's a wonderful, uh, he's, he's been a Disney animator for a long time and now does great uh uh, comic covers and uh, and different types of statues and things and uh, he was very helpful for the last chapter of my book by sending me artwork, sending me some design work. So um, the Captain Action book essentially is a look at this this very resilient character. It's a, it's a book about comics history, it's a book about pop culture history, and it's a collectibles book all in one. And uh, I, I'm actually proud that I've been able to kind of seamlessly marry this stuff into uh, a nice blend. Um, sometimes collectibles books just kind of give you a one-line history and then a price guide, and there's no price guide mm -hmm. here, because prices come and go, they change, and I didn't want to date the book or uh, disrespect its historical value by turning it into a price guide, you know? Mm -hmm. so, so there you go. Well, this is the kind of book that, you know, Tomorrow's puts out, I mean, on a regular basis. This is this is great. And we, with you doing back issue, you know, it's right up your alley, really. Well, it, you know, it is. And the funny thing about this is I, I mean, when I, I got into the comics business professionally 20 years ago, and I've, I've been in and out of it. I, I've not, you know, been you know, permanently entrenched as this or that or at this one place. Um, but it's given me uh, an interesting perspective and uh, the, the, the blessing of being able to work for a variety of, uh, of clients. And it helped me develop over time time, though, um, an appreciation for the history 
behind the medium. And you know what, what's kind of interesting about this? I mean, we, we read stories about Superman and Spider-Man, but and you've probably, Chris, in some of your you know, podcasts and the different, uh, and you were looking into you know, the whatnots behind collected editions. So you look back as well, too, although maybe a little more recently back with collected editions, but uh, a lot of times the stories behind the stories end up being more fascinating than the fiction that these guys tell. And uh, I just, as I've started to dig deeper and deeper and deeper over the years into this, it's just kind of fascinating, especially these golden and, and silver age guys who... You have some time to toil in sweatshops and, uh, you know, have a, a cash cow and get a pittance for it. Uh, and uh, But they came from a perspective in a generation where they were just darn happy to get the work, you know. <laughs> it's a whole different thing now where somebody gets an idea and all of a sudden starts to think is, you know, is merchandising and uh, and Hollywood rice as soon as he just has a character name in his head. So it was a, it was a whole different thing uh, back then and, and people really labored, truly labored to to produce this stuff that uh, still gets read today. Yeah, I I you know in dealing with my comics and looking at the collected editions, I've got a a more of a you know a love for the golden age more than the silver age, partly because the guys who worked in the silver age, and that's nothing to take away from their work, but the guys who worked in the silver age had the golden age as their model. Whereas the guys mm-hmm. in the golden age that were working, you know, the Seagulls and the Schusters and the Canes and the Fingers, you know, and the, even the young Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, they had to go on, you know, the old classics like, you know, Robin Hood and Sherlock Holmes and, you know, Dracula and Ben Helsing. They they didn't really have any comics to go on. They had stories to go on as their heroes and villains um, and trying to take their models and put them to a in a comic book form. Well, that's a really good observation. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, they, these guys were sort of you know trailblazers in oh, a yeah. way, and and they were and they were a lot of them were making stuff up as they went along, which right. is uh, you know and, and some in some cases still exists today, but uh, but not as much today. I mean, there's so many uh, limited series and things are uh, arced out, and you've got all these flow charts for major you know series where things are you know, really worked out and and and, and well oiled. But again, back then, that, that again that, that's why. Mm-hmm. Sometimes continuity gaps exist, and the same thing happened. Uh, you know, I'm a guy who loves uh, classic television, and I mm-hmm. watch old TV shows from time to time. And then, like you know, you can watch, uh, say, as I'm a North Carolina native, I love the Andy Griffith show because it's required by law here in <laughs> North Carolina to love Andy Griffith. But uh, you know, there's a continuity gaps in some of the episodes, like a uh, one episode, uh, like three or four years into it, Barney Fife is celebrating his fifth anniversary on the Mayberry Police Force. But um, <laughs> but then there was a reference in a few years earlier where he'd been around for like 10 years or so. So it's yeah. just, uh, they, nobody ever thought when they were producing this stuff that there'd be any kind of continuing audience. They were just, you know, getting by this week's or this month's episode. So, uh, yeah, it, it kind of had that freedom. Um, it, I don't know if it was exhilarating for these, these guys, but again, they were young Men, some of the guys were old men, <laughs> and uh, just uh, you know, devil may care, and just you know, cranking this stuff out, and right. you know, some of it doesn't hold up, you know. I mean, or at least the standards of art at that time uh, are not the same standards that we have today, and so particularly younger people who don't maybe bring to it a, a historical appreciation would look at some of this golden age stuff and say, you know, what is this garbage? You know, I could go oh, better yeah. than that. Yeah. Oh, well, but, I've, uh, I've done that with, you know, looking at my show, you know, when I look at my show, just, I mean, and I'm, I'm going somewhere with this real quick. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I try to cover things that are more nostalgic and a, a little more older than 10 years because I could go on my show and talk about the latest Spider-Man, the latest X-Men trade, or Batman trade, but I think that would be boring after a while. So I try to get into a little bit of a nostalgic piece, and you know, and, and to get a better appreciation. But even like you said, going back to the older stuff, and you can compare uh, even like Golden Age Superman to you know Will Eisner's Spirit. I think Will Eisner's Spirit blows everything away back then. It makes it look just childish. 
in a way. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Eisner was definitely oh, so uh, far ahead of his he, time. He was amazing. Yeah, he was a visionary, and uh, I mean, just the oh, his, his storytelling techniques, and of course, uh, his his splash and title pages were were legendary mm-hmm. as just singular works of art, and how he could you know evolve the word. Spirit into a cityscape, right. or you know, trees, or something like that. You know that the guy was absolutely, absolutely amazing. Now it's like I, I said, I was going somewhere with this, and uh, here we go um, <laughs> with the more recent classic storylines. Uh, I covered in my show Craven's Last Hunt, and mm-hmm. you have got that magnificent cover to back issue number thirty-five with Craven. Can we talk a little bit about what you have coming up in back issue? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh yeah, back issue well, actually thirty four comes out in, 34, in, uh, right. in May and that's that's got a uh Jim Starlin Warlock cover and that theme is uh, uh New World Order, which uh looks at stuff like Logan's Run and uh and uh Warlock, which is, you know, that was a new world of the counter earth, and then there's a Jim Shooter interview and then a look at the new universe uni- excuse me, I can't say the word, the new universe. But um then per your specific question, uh thirty five, which comes out in July, mm-hmm. is a villain's issue and uh, um, you know Craven's Last Hunt is an exceptional Spider-Man story, and uh, Dan Johnson, one of our semi-regular uh, writers for Back Issue, interviewed uh, Mike Seck and uh, Mark Dematis in a pro-to-pro interview on that topic, and of course they were the artist and writer team. And there's some interesting backstory that I, I, I won't reveal because I want people to actually read the interview mm-hmm. that, that kind of led to Dematis's, um creation of this Craven storyline, but he kind of had a general storyline that was not originally envisioned for Spider-Man and uh, went through a few permutations uh, with different folks, different characters before it ended up as a Spider-Man story, which has become legendary. But um, yeah, that, you know, that that came out in like 86, 87, 88. Those those years right there in the mid eighties were so amazing for comics because a lot of people started taking chances with material, maybe in a fashion that they hadn't done. So, like since the maybe the the the, the verve of the the golden age when uh, people were really just you know coming out with all this stuff, and then it was more volume. But with with uh, by the time the '80s rolled around, the mid '80s, it was more um, toppling the conventions of the medium. And and basically, uh, you know, shaking loose the foundations, and you know, just because it's been done this way for 30 years, you know, well, you know, I'm going to do it this way instead. Mm-hmm. And sometimes things worked, and other times they didn't. But the the ones that really worked, and the, the stories we still talk about, you know, the Dark Knights, the Watchmen, the Cravens, Last Hunt, they were they were character driven. And um, I mean, that's even though Craven kind of takes the spotlight in Last Hunt, it's really a Story of Spider-Man's personal struggles, and uh, yeah, it's yeah, pretty cool. That that Craven cover that Zek did was not intended to be my original cover. Hmm. Um, it was uh, it was it was beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. But uh, that's the third cover in in 36 issues I've had from from oh, 35 issues from Mike Zek. And I think you know, he's one of my favorite artists. Hmm. But uh, that. I was going to have a John Romita Jr. Hopgoblin cover mm. because uh, there's a, a wonderful article in that very issue by Glenn Greenberg, who was a writer and a one-time Marvel Comics editor, who basically did this roundtable of all the writers and a few artists connected to Hopgoblin. And, you know, Hobgoblin's history kind of changed, and he was a character who kind of got reworked midstream right. as to what the yeah, original folks wanted to do. So it's kind of a convoluted history. But, uh, yeah, I wanted a Hobgoblin cover, and, and uh, J.R. Jr. was going to do it, but because of uh, deadline matters, you know, he could not deliver. And then I kind of got stuck. I was waiting. I was hoping. And then, uh, and then that Zek cover... Uh, was a commissioned piece that he had done uh, for a private collector, and I had just seen a, an image of it, and I said, you know, 
this is this is amazing. I, I need to cover Cravens in the issue, Zex in the issue. It's right there. So I contact you know Mike Zek and can may I use this as a cover? Absolutely. And so boom, and it worked perfectly. Uh, uh, Glenn Whitmore colored it wonderfully, and uh, wow. So yeah, every now and then, uh, I mean, some some back issue covers are generated specifically for the magazine. Others are commissions that I have stumbled across. And I think, you know, this is beautiful. We need to share this. So I contact the owner, contact the artist, and then boom, it becomes a cover. Mm. Yeah, great. I'm looking forward to reading this one because sometimes the villains are more interesting than the heroes, <laughs> especially when it comes to a guy like Craven, who is just absolutely insane. Well, yeah, he was he was a whack job. Yeah, he, um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, but the, the interesting thing about this is Craven was a character, and and you know, and Demattis and um, and Zek admit this themselves. He was a character that nobody really gave a crap about. Um, mm-hmm. He he was almost a joke. Um, you know, a guy who looked like he was the sixth village person who uh, was uh, you know chasing Spider Man around just for the thrill of the hunt. It just. Uh, I don't think he was ever one of the A-list, but this one story elevated him to that status. And um, I will reveal one thing that uh, they they credit that it was Jim Salakrup who was editing Spider-Man's franchise at the time who decided this was too important a story to let it play out in just one title because back then, I mean, now we have what the the thrice-monthly Amazing Spider-Man, but back then you had... Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, which was monthly, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, which was monthly, and Web of Spider-Man, which was monthly, and each had their own internal continuities. Mm-hmm. And so each one of them, under other circumstances, could have been playing out their own multi-parters. But uh, Salakrup felt that this sequence, this Craven sequence, was too important to let it run concurrently with other stuff. He really wanted it to be the dominant Spider-Man uh, sequence so they you know, had enough lead time to, to play it out to where they literally had it you know come out like boom 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 and six installments uh, that ran in succession in each of the three spider-man titles so mm-hmm. it that was your spider-man you know storyline for for two months and uh, it just made it all the more effective and that was a really brilliant uh editorial decision on jim's part well, yeah, you probably had a book coming out every two weeks about, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, again, that, that would have been the case under other circumstances, but it wouldn't have been the case by the same creative team. Right, so, exactly. So they had to have some lead time to, to let these guys get this to the point of where they could actually release it on time. Because um, you know, it's you know always important to keep the, the trains running on time, so to mm-hmm. speak, but it... Uh, yeah, it doesn't always happen. I mean, we have today even you know gaps in uh, in publication time. Every now and then, you know, you don't get your your favorite series monthly. Something happens, and you might might be delayed a little bit. I mean, uh, I, I'm I'm surprised that the Spider-Man three times a month thing is. Uh, I'm, I'm very pleasantly surprised that, that these guys have got this as a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. You know, and Trinity seems to be working pretty close, uh, pretty well as a um, as a monthly, excuse me, weekly title. So, yeah, this stuff is this tough enough to do stuff. You know, it's tough enough to do back issue by monthly. Uh, <laughs> but then again, I don't have an editorial staff. It's just me, and it's a part-time right. thing. So, yeah, I mean, the, the more people you have, uh, you know, helping manage the process. Uh, the, the easier it is to produce with that kind of regularity. Well, Captain Action, the original superhero action figure, is going to be coming out in July for thirty nine ninety five. That's a hardcover. And Correct. Yeah, your, it's, it's full color. Yeah. yeah. It's full color. Yep. And it's a hardcover, which is nice too. It is. I, mean, I, have, I have to admit that that's really cool because yeah. I've done a variety of books and a couple for other publishers too. And I have done some color books, but uh, everything I've done to date has been a soft cover trade. And so to finally have a book that's hard enough that if I threw it across the room, I could really you know, make a big sound when it clasped against the floor. That's cool. You know, the hardcover, you know, it actually kind of legitimizes it a bit, too. And uh, um, last year, Tomorrow's published this wonderful book on Miko superheroes. Yes. And, uh, you know, the Captain Action book had predated it by six years or so, softcover format. But uh, now to 
have a second edition in hardcover, in full color. This is a tremendous, a tremendous thrill and honor. I apologize for that beep if it's audible. On no, that's end. all right. I should, okay, I should have turned my uh, call waiting off before I do a podcast, but uh, no, it's more fun to have the strange sound beeping. But uh, yeah, I, again, just seriously, I, I'm, I'm very, very thrilled about Captain Action being uh, in this format. And um, yeah, it's, it's just a testament to the character's longevity that he keeps getting reinvented. And um, I mean, there was another couple of permutations in the 80s and a couple of attempts to bring him back as a comic book character, then as a toy in the 90s. And and so there's something about this character that just you know refuses to die, and um, it's uh, it's an honor to be able to to study his history like this and, and present it in a in a pretty fun way. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Thank you. Definitely looking forward to that book coming out. All right, let's get to our next interview with Pierre. Welcome back. I am here with Pierre Comtois. Is that correct, Pierre? That's that. Very good. Very good. Um, and you have the upcoming book coming out in July called Marvel, or it's a Marvel Comics, an issue by issue field guide to pop culture phenomena, Marvel in the 1960s. And uh, before we get on with the book, let's talk a little bit about your history and how you came to be into, into the comic book field and how you came to be at Tomorrow's and this book. Uh, well, uh, probably like most other people, I started uh, reading Marvel comics when I was a kid. We said the, the, the golden age of comics is the age you start reading, they say. And uh, that was about well, was maybe 1964. I still remember the first book I picked up. It was uh, Spider-Man number 14 with the first Green Goblin. And um, that hooked me for life. I've been reading Marvel comics and, uh, for, for, for the next uh, 40, 50 years. And... Uh, uh, you know, I, I bought them when I was a kid, uh, continued to buy them, slowed down sometimes during high school, like maybe other people did. They found other interests. Uh, but I always always kept coming, kept coming back. And after high school, I sort of rediscovered buying back issues. That was like a new phenomenon that I hadn't occurred to me before. And I sort of rediscovered all the old comics that I read when I was a kid. And that's what really got me into collecting. I began to assiduously collect Marvel Silver Age books to get, the, get them all. And it took me a number of years to do that. And... Um, uh, I've been reading ever since. Uh, since and, and along the way, I got ideas that you know I'd like to write a book about Marvel, you know, and that began in high school, which uh, I was thinking it, it, before I knew anything about uh, fanzines or um, or even realize or let alone the, the, before the era of Tomorrow's, where you could have all kinds of magazines and books out there with all the information and comics you ever wanted. But uh, in those days, I didn't know anything, so I just snipped out little articles in the paper and kept them for back. Uh, for backstory, if I needed research, but that didn't really gel until uh, maybe I was out of college, and I wrote a first article for an old magazine called Amazing Heroes, and they had a feature there called Ten, Ten of a Kind or Ten Keys or whatever, and I decided to write a, a, uh, an article about ten key Marvel comic books. I picked out my favorite ten and wrote reasons why they were uh, key books, and I sent it in. It was summarily rejected. And, uh, but that didn't disappoint me. I, uh, I then wrote another 10 of kind. At that time, was the 10 best two-part Marvel stories in the Silver Age. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was rejected. But um, by then, I got the idea that it was beginning to gel my mind that there were four d- different phases of Marvels. I began to notice that there was sort of like uh, phases that they were going through, the early years, mm-hmm. uh, the years of consolidation, the grandiose years, and the twilight years. Uh, and uh, so I broke them up like that, wrote a few more entries to round it out, and send out that to Comic Book Marketplace, which uh, eventually published it after a number of years. Uh, but I wasn't satisfied when I saw saw the published version. I decided this could be filled out somewhere. So, and by then, the Internet was available, and I had connected with Nick Simon and his site, the Marvel Comics Cover Index. Mm-hmm. And I asked him would he be interested in posting these entries if I decided to write more. And he said, sure, he'd love it. So that gave me the incentive to write more. And when I finished that project, the book was almost complete. And I, and I realized, wait, this could be a book. So I, I, I told him to stop uh, posting most of the entries. And I began shopping it around as a book. I had great faith in it because it was my contention that no book like this has ever been written. There's been some books on Marvel. A lot of them were house house books that were, you know, uh, commissioned by Marvel itself. So they were like sort of like non-critical uh, type books, and they didn't have too much information. And uh, other books were 
uh, uh, written about Marvel Comics, but they were only part of, uh, of a book that was about a broader subject of comic books or, or whatever. But no particular book was written about Marvel issue by issue, why each issue were, was important or a great book or whatever. And that's what I really wanted to see. I never saw that on the market. I says, so I thought this book is a totally unique approach to, um, to Marvel, and it's something that I think might stand uh, for quite a while as the book on Marvel Silver Age. So uh, not to toot my own horn too much, I think I'll just cut off right here and let you uh, take over the program. No, that's fine. <laughs> now, you say you do issue by issue. What do you, what do you exactly do you mean by that? Yeah. You, uh... Well, my, my original idea, uh, as to, uh, whereas impossible as it might have sound, was to do individual reviews of each Marvel comic book through the whole Silver Age. Wow. When I'm ta- we're talking about 2,000, 3,000, whatever they were, books. And, so, and it was supposed to be capsule reviews, you know, a few lines. But as I began to write the entries, they got longer and longer, more detailed, more in-depth. And, uh, uh, and that project, that goal seemed to recede as the more I wrote. So I, uh, I've written as many as I could. I think, I think altogether, uh, this volume and hopefully a second volume that will complete the Twilight Years, altogether maybe three, I mean, three or four, 300, 350 entries, and, um, uh, and, and and that's sort of what it is. Each entry uh, is, uh, I, I guess I picked the, the most key books, the most important books, and maybe not so important books, just the books that are fun, mm-hmm. um, and, tried to, and I started with those. So there's these, these 350 entries could be seen as like the start. <laughs> maybe someday I'll, I'll do them all, but uh, so far each entry uh, covers... Uh, the book itself, the artwork, the writing, the who who wrote and drew them, the creator backgrounds, their context within pop culture, uh, uh, context within the contemporary history of the times, um, every angle, from every angle. So uh, when a person reads these books, they can have a complete picture of Marvel comic books in the 1960s as well as the era they were published in. Now, when you say complete, you're looking at not only just the superhero comics, but the westerns and the, the you know, the espionage comics that came about with like the Nick Fury oh, yeah. and uh, the romance comics and westerns. Like I said, right, right. I have to say, uh, you know, I began the entries with um, uh, the superhero books, like mm-hmm. the first FF number one, nothing before that. Um, but as I moved into the Twilight years, uh, they began to cover, uh, you know, their their horror books, their monster books. Uh, uh, and 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 uh, yeah, would say they're espionage books. So so it broadens beyond superheroes. I, I guess the uh, the broadest idea is that, like I say, that in an ideal world, if I have the time someday, maybe I'd like to do more entries on on pre-hero Marvel or uh, mm-hmm. you know the, the uh, their westerns before uh, that Kirby and uh, and Lee were doing before the superheroes are uh, key to me. They they laid the groundwork for some of the superheroes, but. Uh, if, uh, I had to, had to stop or start somewhere, so <laughs> that may have to uh, uh, probably leave that for uh, future entries. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about Marvel Comics as a company. You know, when I, I collect all the masterworks, you know, and the uh, the essentials and the, the Silver Age, Marvel Age, quote-unquote stuff, but Marvel Comics as a company really took off with Fantastic Four, Spider-Man in the 1960s. But yet, as a company, you know, it, it, it existed as timely, and then through Atlas in the 1950s. What, what, what do you think happened in the 1960s, going from the 50s into the 60s, to, to really put Marvel Comics on the map? I think the main thing was that they turned superheroes from simply uh, attractive costumes into real people. They made them three-dimensional. They, they added uh, the... Um, characterization, personality, soap opera elements that kept readers coming back issue after issue, even beyond the time when normally at the time that pe- they thought, well, kids picked up their first comics around 7 or 8, and they read them until they were 11 or 12, and then they left. And then the readership, you know, started over again, so they could just, you know, repeat the same stories. Uh, but because Marvel invented this sort of soap operatic element that continued from issue to issue, people became interested in finding out what happened to their character next, not necessarily the battles each issue presented, but the personal travails of each chapter. So I think to be 13, 14, and you still want to know what happens next. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they were able to hold on to their readership longer, and so they ended up having kids in college who are actually reading it. Maybe they started before college or in high school, and they're still reading. So their readership extended beyond that narrow window of like 8- to 9-year-olds to 11-year-olds, you know. And um, uh, 
uh, so they held on to their readership. That's uh, and and the reason was they gave them personalities. They gave them other reasons to read the book rather than just the fight scenes. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, the the people writing the stories and doing the stories like Kirby and Lee and Ditko mm-hmm. and all those guys were just they're just fantastic. I mean, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, they were uh, ext- very uh, creative people, fecund imaginations. Um, and uh, and the way Marvel uh, produced its books, like you know the Marvel method, uh, uh, Lee left them uh, they, his artists a lot of room to invent stuff on their own. So he gave them reasons to be interested to to put themselves more of themselves in their books mm-hmm. um, uh, by giving them this uh, this leeway, creative leeway. And what we got was uh, uh, even better comic books that were ever ever produced before. Mm-hmm. Hey, of you course, could... so people may you know discuss well, who who did what that opens that that door. Uh, was Lee taking advantage of his, of his uh, artists by not paying them to write, <laughs> that sort right. of thing, because they were plotting. But that's beside the point. Um, the point is, better comics were produced with this method. You you touched on the four phases, and you go into that a little bit about the book. Can you talk about what do you mean by the four phases and get a little yeah. bit in depth about that? Yeah, um, well, like I said, the four phases, the early years, the years of consolidation, uh, the grandiose years, the twilight years. Um, I, I early found that there were there were clear demarcations, and the early years seemed to be to me the years where where uh, you know Lee and or Zaris had 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 kind of stumbled over an idea by accident uh, of, of like characterization heroes and how heroes live in a real world, a semi-real world, you know, and um, and and they, they were. They were they were exploring uh, their way. They they didn't have a set plan or or a conscious uh, method of approach. Uh, that was the early years. By the, by the years of consolidation, they had come to realize what kind of what they were doing in the early years, and now they began to consciously uh, apply those things they were doing in the early years, like more characterization, more continued stories, more in depth, uh, you know, subplots, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, more crossovers, more expanding of this coherent universe of, uh, called the Marvel Universe. Uh, then in the grandiose years, um, it, it seemed to kick it up a couple, a couple uh, points. And uh, now suddenly the stories became, became uh, lot, far larger than life. Uh, you know, uh, we had, you know, the Galactus Trilogy is only one example. Um, but everything became bigger, larger, more grandiose. Stories, you know, sprawled across multiple issues of, of uh, books and stuff. And uh, uh, more contemporary um, issues began to be in, in, uh, injected into the stories, whether it's drugs or, mm-hmm. or uh, politics or whatever. And, uh, and, and then finally, the Twilight Years was after the peak of those years happening, and uh, Kirby left, Eagle left. Um, uh, there's still lots of great stuff to produced, uh, a lot of great experimentation, but uh, the uh, it was like it was past because it was like slow. Um, decline in, uh, in in the comics themselves as they began to spread their interest around and so it dilute the um, the early uh, excitement of uh, Marvel comic books until eventually it, I'm gonna say it petered out. <laughs> it took it took about maybe five years. My my Twilight years sort of end around 73 to 75, mm-hmm. and that's I guess how I'll explain the four the four phases. Hopefully, I'm more articulate in the book. <laughs> <laughs> um. You mentioned you kind of started this project in, in its various forms at an early age. Do you? How did you do your research? Do you? I'm, I'm guessing you own a lot of these in original form. Yes, I, I, I completed my collection quite a while ago. Uh, if some uh, books not as well conditioned as others, I'm always trying to upgrade. Uh, oh well, research. You know, uh, you know, I have. You know, over the years, I've bought a lot of books on comic books. You know, I'm one of those guys. I get, you know, I'm hoping the next book will have some uh, some information on Silver Age Marvel. And of course, one of the reasons I'm writing this book is because I never could get all that information mm-hmm. and uh, all those books. But I do have a lot of books in my library uh, that I've collected over the years, as well as uh, uh, Tomorrow's publications, Alter Ego, and uh, uh, the comic book artists that Tomorrow's published uh, were all very helpful with all their you know sprawling interviews and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, that helped a lot, but mostly it came from my uh, a heaping helping, as I call it, of my own opinion, uh, garnered from years and years of reading these books and fashioning uh, my ideas of, of uh, why they were great, why this particular book is good, why this artist is fantastic, uh, you know, uh, why this issue made this book really good. Um, and, of course, discussion with my own uh, f- friends who are also fans and helped you know, shape my ideas. So, but I would say a lot of it is, is uh, opinion. 
you know, mm-hmm. and um, and I think that's what makes will make the book uh, more interesting than some simple recitation of the facts. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so there'll be plenty of room for I'm, I'm sure for for fans who read the book to argue on the lists forever <laughs> on whether my opinion was correct or not. <laughs> What kind of artwork have you included in this book? Okay. Uh, well, I, I had originally uh, imagined the book would be like it would have the entry on one side and, and the cover uh, of the book that I'm talking about on the other. Okay. Uh, but that expanded far beyond what I that simple uh, layout with the uh, with the people of Tomorrow's and uh, who are doing a fantastic their job. I have to say, Rich Fox, who's uh, laying out the book, is just blowing my mind with the stuff he's doing. Uh, he, what he's doing is. He's just as creative as, as I was in writing the text as he is in laying it out. He's coming up with ideas that I hadn't thought of or going farther than I thought tomorrow's would want to go. <laughs> so I'm completely delighted with the work he's doing. So what we're, a lo- most of this book is going to be uh, uh, unpublished artwork uh, by Marvel or, or penciled uh, pages, uh, uh, you know, original art pages being used for illustrations, uh, photos, uh, sources from all, you know, movies, film, uh, books, paperbacks, uh, magazines, uh, uh, contemporary photos of, um, of uh, events that take place concurrently with the comic, comic books during the 60s, pop culture stuff, uh, uh, photos of creators and historical figures. Uh, it it's, it's truly will be a book about Marvel comic books in the 1960s and their place in pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, this book is going to be a visual feast for the eyes, if you know, to coin a cliché. Well, not only that, but I think the cover is a is a visual feast for the eyes. With I, w- I was looking at it the other day, and I was trying to pick out. Uh, and for the listeners, you've got to go see the cover because it's just fantastic. And and picking out what it is that you see in this cover because it's all the knickknacks and uh, weapons and the paraphernalia of all the uh, of all the superhero characters. Right. The cover was drawn by Mike Manley and inked by. Uh Tom Palmer, which I'm totally delighted in having some connection with one of the greats that uh, yeah. I'll be, I discuss uh, at length in the book. Yeah, we've had Mike on the show before. Mike's a great huh. guy, but oh man, there's so many like it's like a big Easter egg hunt with this thing. <laughs> right. What's but what's what's left for volume two now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, do you read comics these days? Oh yeah, uh, <clears throat> new comic books I don't buy too much. I. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, now and then I'll pick up, uh, you know, I still go to the comic shop every, every month or so. Uh, usually what I buy now are, are the uh, pulp reprints of The Shadow and Doc Savage. I kind of look forward to those as much as I used to look forward to my Marvel comics. Mm-hmm. But uh, new comics I don't, I don't pay much attention to. They're, I don't like the, the, the darkness, uh, the, the way they're drawn. Or, uh, I like the, the traditional way of comics with panel-to-panel progression and mm-hmm. <clears throat> regular artwork that, that shows the artist's uh, craft. I think more than uh, you know, spray painter or or uh, whatever they do now. These days, a lot of books and um, and is you know that the continuity seems to have been you know completely broken down at Marvel anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, if I buy a book, it's it's usually a, what they call a retro book. <laughs> so if some, someone does a, a story that looks that's drawn deliberately to look like a '60s book or, or the way comics used to be drawn, and a story that takes place in that era. And those are the books I might pick up. So mm-hmm. maybe one or two a year in that in that regard. But uh, what I do read is I read my my collection. I my, I've gotten the habit years years and years ago to read like one book a day. So mm-hmm. I, I I can go through my whole collection maybe in about uh, five years, <laughs> going one one a day. And and that way um, I pick out a book I, I haven't read in five years. It's and it's almost the same thrill as reading it almost for the first time. I I, I'd say, I, I find myself uh, not being able to wait for the next issue that I'm going to read tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's why it keeps, keeps my excitement. But uh, and I find when I read them, I enjoy them just almost as much as I ever have. Anything else you want to offer? Uh, on, the, on this book, like I said, uh, uh, hopefully uh, it, the sales will justify the second volume with the Twilight Years, which I personally think is much stronger uh, as a book written uh, as a book uh, than than the first volume. Not that the first volume isn't strong. I think it's, it's I think it's great. Um, but uh, it would be nice to have both volumes out there. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, um, I, I I I am involved in a comic book project. You said I do I still read comic books? Well, I might be reading another one called Space 1958, which I'm writing myself. Oh, excellent! <laughs> yeah, I've teamed up with an artist named uh, Dan Morton. He's very good. He's in this uh, Wally Wood, uh, Al Williamson style. Nice. And uh, he's as far, uh, he tells me he's working on that right now, and hopefully that'll the first issue will be ready for. Uh, 
think uh, August or September. It's a, like an EC-style short story, science fiction story. So oh, cool. I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully that will be a regular series. Excellent. And I have a, a number of other books, unrelated to comic books, that are out there that you can find on barnesandnoble.com or on Amazon. One is uh, Strange Company, a novel. Uh, it's like a mystery novel in which uh, Thomas Jefferson is the, uh, the sleuth trying to solve a murder uh, uh, before uh, the, uh, the, the peace treaty, the Paris peace treaty arrives uh, on American shores. Uh, another is uh, capsule portraits of uh, 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 heroes of the revolution, uh, the American revolution called uh, Our Lives, Our Fortunes, Our Sacred Honor. Uh, and another is uh, a collection of science fiction stories called The Way the Future Was. And hopefully there will be another collection in the fall called Autumnal Tales with all my horror stories. So <laughs> I'm going to be pretty busy uh, the next busy few months. You are busy Right. <laughs> but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, the fan reaction to um, uh, you know, uh, Marvel Comics in the 1960s, and hopefully it will be uh, a strong uh, reception and um, make way for Convince John to uh, do Volume 2. Exactly. I, I know Rich Fox is already rearing to go on it. <laughs> Well, this is one of those books that, that is right down, uh, you know, the alley that Tomorrow's does. I mean, this is okay, great. This yeah. is right in their wheelhouse. I mean, Yeah, that's exactly what I thought when I submitted the book to them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, it all turned on, on getting, uh, it's another aspect of the, uh, the book, it all turned on getting permission from Marvel uh, to allow use of their imagery, uh, which I understand was not allowed. Mm-hmm. And that's why Tomorrow's has never really published any book devoted to Silver Age Marvel. Uh, because they couldn't get permission from Marvel to, uh, d- you know, use all the imagery, and they asked me if I could get uh, permission from Marvel to use interior pages and artwork, um, they would go ahead with the project. So I contacted Marvel's legal department and negotiated with them about maybe for about four or five months, and they finally gave permission to use about 40 pages of the 40 percent of the book could be dedicated to Marvel imagery, and I understand that was a, a pretty unique arrangement. So that's another reason why uh, this book is a unique project that uh, fans ought to embrace, because outside of Marvel's own, um, uh, you know, contracted books, you know, like like Marvel's history books, these big hardcover things that they give, they're sort of like they contract out to have it done. This is the, probably the only independent of Marvel book ever written about the company mm-hmm. uh, that has so much of its imagery and that's been allowed by the company. So uh, that's another another. Uh, unique facet of this project. Yeah, they keep it close to the vest. That's why, you know, yep. there's no companion books for uh, uh, over at Tomorrow's with, with Marvel. You know, it's all, right. mostly all the DC stuff or, you know, the other independent stuff. Yeah, um, exactly. And from what I from John is that uh, even Roy Thomas was never, not able to get yeah. permission from Marvel to use imagery to do a book untimely. I mean, yeah. uh, so I, I, I hadn't realized how... Um, how uh, rare <laughs> or lucky maybe I was in uh, being able to get the deal. So uh, that's another reason that I guess people ought to support the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe I've, there won't be another one anytime soon. <laughs> I've talked to Roy about that. You know, he's uh-huh. been on the show a couple times and, and just in different conversations that, you know, they bring out the old masterworks and they have the introductions, and Roy does a lot of those introductions, mm-hmm. as, you, as you know. Right. And you really only get the insight of those, you know, eight or ten comics from from one person's point of view in, in a you know a small little essay, couple paragraph essay, it'd be right. great to have more of that from other people's vantage points, mm-hmm. such as yourself in, the, in this book. So hopefully, this book will open up more doors and open up Marvel to to talk about timely and talk about Atlas and the different eras that they right. have, even the 1970s. Right. You know. Yeah, and uh, also it's not just for Marvel. I, I I want to bring attention to the creators who yes. uh, I think don't get enough uh, attention. Especially in this case, like Don Heck is like you know everyone talks about Stan, Jack, Steve, but uh, but unfortunately over the years uh, Don Heck has been uh, I might say disparaged, uh, made fun of at some point uh, some decades ago. Uh, I remember there, were, there was a lot of that, and since then he, no one really kind of thinks about him when they think of early Marvel. But I'm, I hope uh, I, I give him his due in this book, and which I think he deserves as one of the great artists. Well, uh, he did Marvel. all the Iron Man stuff, right? Right, right, yeah. Iron Man, yeah. And uh, and Avengers and uh, he yep. and he did some wonderful stuff that uh, I don't think pe- people kind of forget. You know, they 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 just remember him maybe when he was inked by other people, but that really didn't serve him well. And so his, his artwork didn't seem so hot or so like, dynamic maybe as Kirby or, or or Deco. But when once they see his work inked by himself, uh, it's just no contest. It's spectacular stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, I hope to bring some some attention to uh, creators like Don and and others. 
um, and 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 the and the uh, at Marvel that uh, that they deserve. And I know there's a lot of big movies coming out, and sometimes if they're they're starting to give credit to the creators other than like you know uh, Stan Lee, they start to mention Jack Kirby or mm-hmm. or uh, 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 Steve Dico in the Spider-Man movies. Um, so uh, hopefully this will this will help uh, maybe jumpstart that. Um, uh, maybe create a new new tradition in giving people credit on these movies. I mean, I'd love to see Don Heck when that Iron Man movie came out. I want it to be created by, by Stan Lee and Don Heck. But, uh, you know, I don't remember if they mentioned Don Heck now that I think of it. <laughs> but you, hopefully that'll become Dirty Girl in the you future. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my DVD in in about five <laughs> minutes and check that. i got to double-check that, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, hey, it's been great talking to you. Marvel Comics in the 1960s, an issue-by-issue issue field guide to pop culture phenomenon right will be out it's scheduled to be out july 22nd dates are always subject to change and it is available for 27.95 over at tomorrow's and your favorite retailer pierre right. thank you so much for being on the show today this oh, is you're great. welcome and the book will be worth every penny <laughs> <laughs> it's not expensive but this book will be worth every penny excellent All right. <laughs> well thank you very much for having me on your show cool thanks pierre I want to thank Michael and Pierre for coming on the tune-in this month. And don't forget, you can pre-order those through your previous catalog, your local comic book store. And as always, you can order those through the Tomorrows.com website when they come out in July. And be sure to check out my podcast, The Collected Comics Library, the comic book and trade paperback podcast, the only podcast solely dedicated to news, information, interviews on all sorts of comic book collected editions. My name is Chris Marshall, and you can email me with questions or comments at collectedcomicslibrary at gmail.com. And please come by the tomorrows.com website when you get a chance. And please, if you get a chance also, leave me an iTunes review. I'm always accepting those over at iTunes. We'll talk to you next month, everybody. Take care.